0: Oh, good morning, everybody. How are you? Remain standing if you would. If you've made your way to your chair, I'll ask you to stand back up on your feet if you're able to. And I was telling the first service, Travis is still in here. Man, I'm so grateful for that moment that you led for us. So grateful for that moment. I had a friend uh, say to me a number of years ago, he said, and I love this. He said, what I want out of church is I want the line between life and church to be very blurry. And by that he meant, I don't want to come to church and have church be something other than what is happening in the world that I live in. But I want church to reflect what's happening in the world that I live in. But also, I want my life to carry something of whatever it is happens in church, right? And we have these, we live these compartmentalized lives. And part of what we're doing when we come into worship is that we're acknowledging that all of the things that are going on in our world, that those belong in the presence of God. And that the only way that we know the truth about those things actually is inside the presence of God. And so when we come to this moment in our service where we're saying the creed, do you know what we're doing? We're saying that this is the truest truth over all of the war and the violence and the breakdown and the discord of our world That it's all encompassed within this larger story. So, this is not just some religious ritual that we're doing to make ourselves feel better that we're on Team Jesus. This is about us telling the truth about what's going on in our world. So, with that in your heart, can you say this with faith this morning? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. If you can agree with that, say it real loud. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're in the book of Galatians chapter... To this morning, continuing our series, the revolutionary gospel, as we learned a couple weeks ago, uh, the churches of Galatia were some of the earliest churches that Paul planted and founded and ministered to. Uh, This letter to the Galatian churches really is one of the earliest uh, bits of, uh, it's one of the earliest like artifacts that we have from the early church. So probably written between 15 and 20 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. And Paul is writing because of this urgent matter that's come up that's starting to scramble the churches that he helped to plant and that he cared for. So one of the things that you notice when you read the New Testament is that so many of the other letters to the Apostle Paul, they open with kind of a greeting, and then he goes into all of these warm fuzzies and all of that. He's like, I've heard about everything that's going on with you, and it's so good, and I'm so proud of you, and it's all wonderful. And in Galatians, he doesn't do that. He gives a short greeting... And then he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly turning away from the one who called you into the grace of Christ into another gospel that really isn't any gospel at all. But what he hasn't done up to this point in Galatians is he hasn't really told us anything about what this other gospel is that's starting to pull the church apart. And it's not until we get to chapter 2, where we're going to be in this morning, where we start to see what was causing the churches of Galatia... Uh, which is modern-day Turkey, those churches to fray at the edges. Now we start to see it. And I think that what Paul has to say in Galatians chapter 2, his remarks, I think, are really poignant remarks when it comes to the subject of unity. What does it look like in a situation where there are different expressions of being the church, different expressions of faith? What does it look like for us to be unified together? And this issue that the church wrestled with in the first century sets the theological and the practical foundation for the unity that we are enjoying today but it's also a unity that's an ongoing challenge for us and that's what I want to talk about this morning and so Lord we lift up our hearts to you we thank you for your goodness and your love we thank you Jesus Christ that you are still speaking and you have never stopped speaking and you will never stop talking to your church And so we pray that this morning as we open the scriptures that the voice of the living God would resound. We are asking that you take the words of the scripture and make them the living word of God. We're asking that you would take the words of the preacher this morning and make those words the voice of the living God. We're asking that all resistance in us would be torn down. We're asking that you would inspire our hearts again with the beauty of the kingdom. Paul talks in Ephesians. He says... I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened in order that you might know the hope to which you've been called, the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints, and the incomparably great power that's at work among us who believe. And so I'm praying that this morning, that we would remember the hope, that we'd see the riches of being in the church, and that we would know the power of God to save us and to bring us into the kingdom. Oh, grant that, we're asking. Do those things among us. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul says, then after 14 years, now what he's been doing in the past bunch of verses here in Galatians chapter 1 is he's really talking about his ministry and his mission. As you remember, Paul was a leading member of the party of the Pharisees. He was an early persecutor of the church. And then in Acts chapter 9, he has a letter from the chief priest to throw the believers in prison, anybody that he caught worshiping Jesus. And instead, he's thrown from his horse, right? Has an encounter with Jesus Christ that turns his life upside down. And all of a sudden, rather than persecuting the early church, Paul begins to minister all up there in Asia Minor, the churches of Galatia and all of that, Area founding these churches. And a lot of what's happening among Paul's churches is that the Gentiles are coming in. And so Paul has been talking about this revelation from Jesus Christ, how he's establishing the churches, preaching the gospel. And then we get this moment after 14 years. So he's been doing ministry for a long time. He says, I went up again to Jerusalem, and this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus also, and I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I've been preaching among the Gentiles. And what I was hoping to do is I wanted to be sure that I wasn't running and had not been running my race in vain. And yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. Now just remember that because that is a glimpse at what was going on in the churches of the first century, this controversial issue. Not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. And this matter arose because some false believers—everybody say false believers— had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We didn't give in to them for a moment so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized. Everybody say recognize. They recognized that I had been entrusted And with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those of Pillars, they gave me and Barnabas, what does the text say? The right hand of fellowship when they, there's that word again, recognized the grace given to me. And they agreed, that we should go to the Gentiles and that they go to the circumcised or to the Jews, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I had been eager to do, brothers and sisters. This is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. So now we're beginning to see what the issue is. And if you'll recall, the church in its beginning, in its foundation, it's a movement of Jewish people, isn't it? But the story is the story, the story that the story of Jesus grows up out of is the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the whole Old Testament. And what happens with Jesus is everywhere in the scriptures presented as the fulfillment of Israel's story. Jesus was a Jewish man. His 12 disciples, they were Jewish men. The people that originally gathered around Jesus, they were Jewish people. And when Pentecost happens and the Spirit is poured out, who does it fall upon? Jewish people. But now as the book of Acts is starting to move forward and as the church is growing, one of the things that happens is that you see the gospel leap out beyond the boundaries of its Jewish roots and start to touch the Gentiles, people that don't have all of those deep ethnic roots, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of that. So as the gospel is touching the Gentiles, the really urgent question becomes, okay, Jesus... He lived, he died, he was raised to life again. The Spirit has been poured out. The Gentiles are coming in and they're experiencing the gift of the Holy Spirit and all this wonderful stuff is happening. But how much and to what extent do they need to become Jewish people, culturally speaking, in order to continue on as members of the body of Christ? And to us, it seems like an obvious issue, doesn't it? But to the first century, it wasn't an obvious issue at all. Think about what Jesus says. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fill it up. So the question was, what does it look like to see the law filled up among God's people? Do we need to continue to practice all of these things? Circumcision, the Sabbath laws, and all of that. And there was a very vocal member, a very vocal party in the early church that basically said, yeah, you have to. If you're going to continue to be in the church, you got to abide by these things. And so the early church met to try to settle this issue which also i think set the stage for really making sense of paul's mission to the gentiles and we read about it in acts chapter 15 and i think that acts chapter 15 is talking directly about what paul is talking about here in galatians chapter 2 look at this the scripture says that certain people came down from judea to antioch and they were teaching the believers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by moses you cannot be what does it say saved that's the whole thing are you really a valid believer If you don't practice your faith in the way that these Jewish believers have been practicing their faith. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And so Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about the question. And the church sent them on their way. And as they traveled throughout Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all the believers glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they welcomed the church and the apostles and the elders welcomed them to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Again, the apostles and the elders met to consider the question, and after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, he said, You know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart showed that he What does Peter say? He accepted them, these Gentile believers who don't practice circumcision, who don't keep the Sabbath laws, who don't abide by the cycle of festivals, who don't practice all the dietary restrictions. Still, Peter acknowledges that the Holy Spirit accepted them, okay, just as he did us. And he didn't, what does the text say there in verse 9? He didn't discriminate between them and us, for he purified their hearts also by faith. Now, Peter says... Why are you trying to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, the meat of strangled animals, and from blood for the law of Moses has been preaching every city in the earliest times and has read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. What is it that they decide? This is the first church council. What is it that they decide? They decide that people do not need to become ethnically or culturally Jewish in order to belong to this new movement. That nobody is accepted before God on the basis of the things that they do or on the basis of their ethnicity or their skin color. But they are accepted purely on the basis of what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. And because of that, acknowledging that, that actually allows this Gentile mission to go forward with full speed. And so what they do is they take the results of this decision at this council. And they write it up and they pass it around as a circular letter which goes to all of the churches. Verse 30 of chapter 15. So the men were sent off and they went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. And the people read it. And what does the text say? They were glad for its encouraging message. So here is what happens in Jerusalem. Is that this Jewish movement recognizes that there is this thing happening among Paul where the Gentiles are coming into the faith They meet to consider the question, do Gentiles need to become culturally Jewish in order to be members of the body of Christ? And the resounding answer from the Jerusalem council is no. "No." And because of that, the mission to the Gentiles is allowed to carry forward at full speed. Peter, James, John, and Paul gather together and have this moment of unity, which also sets the stage for all of the things The astronomical growth of the church in the last 2,000 years. Like, brothers and sisters, do you realize that we are sitting in this room today because of the clear-eyed perception of the ramifications of the gospel that took place at that council two years ago? We are the beneficiaries of that moment. Can we get a thanks be to God in this house this morning? We're the beneficiaries of that. But it was predicated on something, see, It was predicated on the recognition of the, what does Galatians 2 say? The recognition of the grace of God in people who practice their faith a little bit differently, in in people who see things differently, and also in people who carry a different mission than those early believers in Jerusalem carried. That accepting of difference actually set the foundation for all of this to happen that we have seen in the last 2,000 years, I want to say it to you like this this morning that the recognition of the grace of God in others leads to two things, at least two things. Leads to the unity of the church, number one, and to the increase of the gospel, number two. Can I get a thanks be to God for that? The recognition of the grace of God in others leads to the unity of the church and the increase of the gospel. God gains more territory on planet Earth when we recognize the grace of God in each other and we receive one another in all of our differences and we do not reject one another. Now, this is not easy. If you've been in the church for more than 10 minutes, okay, you realize that this is not easy. Part of the challenge of any moment in church history and especially, I think, our own, where there is so much division in our world, is allowing the Lord to stretch us in those places where we encounter difference in the church and we're not really sure what to do about it. We've got to allow the Lord to stretch us on those things. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this in the 10 minutes or so that I've been talking, but I'm a white man. <laughs> you had something like, what? I wish that he'd said that ahead of time. I knew there was something off about that guy. But I am. I'm white. I've always been white, grew up white. <laughs> from this little town in central Wisconsin, and golly, I, we just mostly white community up there. And I think that we knew generously, maybe we knew five black people, I think, growing up, something like that. And so, as it is, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from on planet Earth, anybody that comes from anywhere just assumes that where they come from, how they practice their faith if they grew up in church, how they sing, how we preach, how we believe, how we do what we do. That that's really the right way of doing things, right? And everybody else is just a little bit like it'll take them some time. But eventually, hopefully, by the grace of God, they'll catch up. Now, there's a word for that, ladies and gentlemen. The word is ethnocentrism, okay? It's bad. We don't want that. That's not good. That's the sin of pride, okay, set to the key of ethnicity, all right? But I had a little bit of that. And by the grace of God, you know, as I was 18 years old, I went off to college, Oral Roberts University down in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and um, I got placed, and surely, I, as I look back on it, I go, this is like a mercy of God on Andrew's life. I got placed on a floor that was traditionally mostly or all black. It was just a bunch of brothers, right? And I remember when I got there, starting to meet some of my doormates, like I didn't actually realize it until I got there. And I go, oh, nobody looks like me on this floor, except for three other guys. There were three white guys besides me, besides Andrew on that floor, two of them were the grandsons of a famous televangelist and the other guy was from Canada. So it was bound to be like a very lonely year for me culturally speaking, you know. And I, I just remember as those first few months of the school year progressed, just feeling a little like, because I'm like encountering the culture of the black church for the first time, thinking, man, this is so like, you know, listening to gospel music and like, God, forgive me for this. But I thought, I thought gospel music was a little boisterous for my taste, <laughs> which is like a wildly, wildly hypocritical thing for a kid who grew up in a Pentecostal church to say about like anybody's music, you know. <laughs> you know, it just always rankled me up, you know. And I remember coming uh, up to my dorm floor one afternoon after class, and I heard. Uh, A really familiar sound, actually coming from one of the rooms. And it was that somebody had an acoustic guitar and they were playing it. And they were playing Daryl Evans's music. Now I know I'm dating myself pretty significantly with that, but it was 1999, and Daryl Evans was all the rage in my white little world, you know. And I remember getting off of the elevator, and I'm hearing Daryl Evans music coming down the hallway. And I remember thinking to myself, "It happens. The Lord has somehow wrought a great transformation." on this floor and now we're finally, we're singing the music of heaven. Isn't this wonderful? Now I feel more comfortable with who I am here and all of that. So I did what you do. I followed the sound of this heavenly song to the dorm room that it was coming from. And when I got closer, I began to realize that the sound, the songs of Daryl Evans were not being sung really with very much sincerity at all. In fact, it was a couple of the guys got their hands on an acoustic guitar And they were making fun of my music. And don't they know that's God's music too. Jesus sings Daryl Evans songs before the throne of God above. He's doing that. He's singing trading my sorrows, which doesn't make sense, but it's a good groove, you know? And he's, you'll get that joke later. What? Right? Right? That moment, though, of realizing that like we all are a little bit absurd to each other and that's a good thing. Because when you allow yourself to stay in that space with people that are different from you, what it does is it opens your eyes and it transforms the way that you see the world. And I just not had any real encounters with the black church and with that experience. And getting to know those guys opened up my eyes and opened up my heart and transformed me. It made me a better human being. I'm enriched and I don't need to become like these guys, but somehow that there is like this, there's a mutual enriching of each other's faith that happens when we don't allow our cultural differences or our differences of preference to divide us. Something takes place in us and we begin to realize that strengths that you have, I don't have and strengths that I have, you don't have and we strengthened by one another I remember getting off of the elevator another one of these days like as the year wore on we just became family we became brothers with each other and I remember getting off of the elevator one afternoon or one morning heading to class and my next door neighbor Brandon McGriff Brandon gets off of the elevator and he takes one look at me and by the way like this is uh, outside of like weddings this is about as uh, put together as Andrew ever looks which means it's like two clicks above slovenly most of the time you know And Brandon gets off the elevator and we exchange greetings real quick. And he takes one look at me, like scans me up and down and he goes, do white mothers not love their children? (laughs) Well, I can't, it's hard, you know, for me to speak for all white mothers. um, And I do think that my mother loves me very much, but also when you put the matter like that, I just really don't know how to answer the qu- And he goes, get on in here. I go, I'm going to be late for class. He goes, get in here right now. So we go into his room and he pulls out his ironing board and the iron. He goes, give me your shirt. <laughs> Hand my shirt over to Brandon and Brandon pulls out the starch and the iron. He just, man, pressed that thing just so nice, right? So I start putting the shirt back on and he goes, pants. <laughs> give me your Pants. And at that point, I was pot committed, you know, to the whole scenario. So there you go, the pants come off and I'm standing there in my boxer shorts next to a guy that I would have never wound up in community with had I been left to my own devices, but God gave us to each other. And there I am in my boxer shorts while he's showing me how to properly iron a pair of slacks. Now, I think the kingdom of God is something like that. (laughs) this like recognition of the grace of God in each other that strengthens us and that builds us up and becomes a testimony to the world of a better way of being but you know the words of the psalmist psalm 133 the psalmist says how good and pleasant it is when what that's right when we're in unity and what is it like he says it's like that precious oil poured on the head Running down on the beard, down on Aaron's beard, that sweet oil, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even. What? Where does the Lord bestow his blessing? In the place of unity. Where does God give his life? In the place of unity. When we're not leveraging our differences to hurt one another or push off of one another. But when our differences are blending together into a symphony. That's the place that the Lord bestows his blessing on. Even life forevermore. Jesus, I think, hits the nail directly on the head and gives us the richest vision for unity that we could ever be given. When he says this in John chapter 17... He says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about the 12 in the room with him. But I'm praying also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who is that? That's us. And what's Jesus' prayer for us? That all of them may be one. Father, how? Just as you are in me and I am. Now think about that for a second. That the prayer of Jesus over his church is that they, despite all of their differences, and they are many, aren't they? That despite all of their differences, they would be one just as he and the Father are one. Now think about that. But there is no, there is no disunity, there is no division, there is no discord in the Godhead. And the prayer of Jesus is that there would be no disunity, no division and no discord inside the community of faith as well. Are you tracking with me this morning? He says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you have what? sent me and have loved them just like you have loved me. How does the world know that Jesus is the son of God according to Jesus himself? The unity of the church. It's not the church's clever worship. It's not the church's clever programs. It's not the church's clever preaching. It's not the church's clever outreach and evangelism. None of those things. How does the world know That the church is carrying the true message about the reality of all things. It knows it when the church is living together in unity. Can I get some amens this morning? Our unity is the most powerful witness to the world of the saving love of the triune God. And if that is true, and here's the sting of it, then the converse is also true. That our sins against unity are the most powerful anti-witness to the world of that love. If the recognition of the grace of God in others, our unity is the most potent witness to the world, of the saving love of the triune God, then every time we sin against unity, that is the most potent anti-witness to the world of the love of the triune God. Our message is invalidated by our failure to walk in unity with one another. And it's hard. The ethnic things and the preference things and all that stuff that I outlined before, that stuff is very difficult. But it's also very difficult when we start thinking about matters of theology, right? Matters of practice, different ways of understanding God and the gospel, different ways of practicing our faith. I think that it stretches us and it challenges us. Here, I remember being in seminary, Mandy and I went to One of the largest churches in the area or the place that I was going to seminary. This church is huge. 15,000 or so people. And we loved this place. We loved the preaching and we loved the worship. And we loved this whole way of just conducting its life as a congregation. And we were so elated by how it reached out to the community and tried to draw people in. Its emphasis on evangelism. There's so much respect for this church and love for this church. And not more than 30 minutes down the road, another very very, very large church, fifteen thousand members, twenty thousand members, something like that, also large, also very influential and I remember this is a 22 year old 23 year old thinking, well, surely the pastor of our church and the pastor of this church down here, surely these guys are friends, surely they're getting together to talk shop, talk theology, talk philosophy of ministry. I know that there are like slight differences here, but surely they're they're getting together to talk about the kingdom of God, to talk about what the spirit is doing in the greater metro area of this city and planning together how we're going to be together, a force to see this area transformed for the gospel. And I, was, I remember just being so grieved as a 23-year-old, 24-year-old to learn that not only did those guys never, ever, ever get together, but there was bad blood between them. And you know what it was about? minor doctrinal issues, and minor disagreements of how we practice our faith in community. And somehow, those guys had elevated those things to the level of deal breakers for unity. That's a sin against the Holy Spirit, guys. It is. Do you think about all of the good that could have been done with church leaders coming together? And yes, we have differences, but let's pray and let's seek the will of God for this area. And instead they left all of that on the table because I'm right and I'm, I know that I'm right and our way of doing things is right and your way of doing things is wrong. And it wasn't over primary doctrinal matters or primary ethical matters, but it was about secondary things. I think that this is a problem for us. I think that one of the big issues that we have in the church of the 21st century is that we have gotten confused about the difference between primary doctrinal matters and secondary doctrinal matters. Primary doctrinal matters. One God in three persons. That's a primary doctrinal matter. Primary doctrinal matters. The incarnation of the second person of the Trinity for us and for our salvation. Primary. Primary doctrinal matters. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit to create the church. Primary doctrinal matters. The second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in glory. Secondary doctrinal matters. Everything else, (laughs) your view of predestination and free will, your view of the sacraments, your view of the miraculous, your view of pacifism versus just war and all of that, all of that, those are secondary doctrinal matters. And when we use those, though, as sources of disunity and division in the church, as we make them primary matters, what it does is it breaks down the body of Christ. I remember around the same time being in seminary and there was a guy who came up and was preaching in one of our chapel services. And this was about, golly, how long ago was it now, honey? 15 years ago, I was in seminary, 15 years ago. And at the time, there was a lot of debate raging in the American church about the question about women in ministry and then also... How do we set up the home theologically, you know? Like, what is, that, what is that? Does the male make all of the decisions in the household? Or does the wife have something to say about that? Complementarianism versus egalitarianism, if you're familiar with that discussion. A great debate. Raging in the church then, still raging in the church. And I remember the, this guy getting up in a chapel service. And he was a guy who was very committed to the idea of male headship in the home And no women preaching, teaching, or showing authoritative leadership in the church whatsoever. That was his, now I don't agree with that position, but that's a fair position to hold. You can do that and still be inside the bounds of orthodoxy. But I remember this guy getting up in the chapel service and he says this. He goes, if the word of God teaches that women are not allowed to show authoritative leadership in the church, then any church or movement that allows a woman to do so is in direct disobedience to the word of God. And I remember sitting there in that chapel service thinking, did you just really excommunicate everybody in the church that doesn't think like you think about this issue? But like who appointed you the Pope of evangelicalism? You're just making these pronouncements, right? That we all just kind of have. Listen, it ain't in the job description, man. (laughs) It's one thing for you to put forward your ideas in a spirit of love, charity, and allow the church to consider those ideas. It's another thing to say that if you don't line up with these things, you're not a valid member of the body of Christ. Are you tracking with me this morning, brothers and sisters? We do that all the time. But here's the thing is I remember being in that chapel service and you know what I wanted to do? What I wanted to do is go, well, all right, man. If you're going to hold that position, then I'm going to excommunicate you. And I think that anybody that holds that position or that holds that position with that level of snarliness and meanness You can't be in the church anymore, right? That's what we do. Guys, that's what we do. And when we do that, it's an affront to the Holy Spirit. And what I want to say to you this morning is that the moment that we, you consider this now, the moment that you make your pet issue, and I don't know what your pet issue is, theological position, political position, ethical position, personal preference about how church should be, The moment you make your pet issue, number one, the mark of salvation and or number two, a source of division, you leave the fold of the faithful. And you know why I say that? I say that because of Galatians chapter 2 and verse 4. Look at this verse. Let's circle back to the false believers here for a second. This matter, Paul says, arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Now here's the question to be asked and with this we'll start making the turn into communion. Why does Paul call them false believers? Is it because they practice circumcision? Uh Uh-uh. Is it because they follow the Sabbath laws? It's not rhetorical. Talk back to me. Is it because they follow the Sabbath laws? No. No. Is it because they abide by the Jewish regulations concerning diets and all of that stuff? Is it for any of those reasons? No, do you know why he calls them false believers? Because they insist that everybody else have to do it that way. And the moment they insist that everybody else think like they think, practice their faith like they practice their faith, they actually exclude themselves from the circle of the faithful. Are you with me? Guys, we do this all the time. We do this with our theology. Our hard-won positions about things that we think are true, our interpretations of Scripture. Man, and I'm not poo-pooing any of that at all. They are hard-won. You thought about it and you came by that position honestly. Honestly. But the moment you start thinking that nobody else gets to play in the body of Christ unless they see things the way that you see them, you are the one that leaves the folder. Think about our ethical positions, you know? What's permissible permissible for Christians? Can we drink? Not drink? Smoke? Not smoke? Go to rated R movies? Not go to rated R movies? Read Harry Potter? Not read Harry Potter? (laughs) But even in the last year and a half, guys, the ethical stuff that we believe in That so easily tears us apart. Think about as we've been in this global pandemic masks or no masks, vaccines or no vaccines. You get to that position honestly, whatever it is that you hold. I know that you hold that with a good heart. But the moment you start behaving as though nobody else gets to play in the kingdom of God unless they think like you think about that, who leaves the fold at that point? You do. Or your politics hard-fought positions about what we think is best for our country, right? That it'd be better if we did this or it'd be better if we did that. But the moment we marry inclusion in the body of Christ with our idea about the best way to run the country, who leaves the fold? We do. And none of these things are bad things. Your theology is a good thing. The way that you practice your faith is a good thing. Your positions about the country, that's a good thing. and All of these things need to be considered and need to be heard. But this is what I want to say to you. That when we take those good things and use them to divide up the body of Christ, you know what we're doing? We're shoving a spear in the side of Christ again. A spear is a good thing. That Roman centurion that held it, that was a good thing. But it was used in the wrong way. And when we use those good things to dismember Christ we're guilty. It's on us. And you know what the call is? To repent. Can we stand this morning? Oh, Jesus, we need you. Jesus, we need you. What's the thing, family, that you've been holding as a source of division for the church, and maybe even more as a way of flushing that out, I want you to consider maybe the group of people or the person in the church that's the most difficult for you to love. (laughs) So you consider the wide sweep of the body of Christ. What's that group of people or that person that in your own mind, what you are constantly thinking is, the church would be way better off if those people were out of the picture. Whatever that is, that needs to get flushed out. You need to repent of that. And so Lord Jesus, we come before you wanting to be transparent about where we're at and what we've held that has broken down your body. And so we make this our prayer before you this morning. We say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done, and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. Now here is the good news, brothers and sisters that the very ones that pierced his hands and thrust a spear in his side, Jesus from the cross says, Father, forgive them. They didn't know what they were doing. Brothers and sisters, I say to you this morning that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you can receive the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus this morning, would you give God praise and thanksgiving? We say thank you, make us soft again towards one another, Lord Jesus. Let's sing this song of worship in response and then Pastor Colin will lead us to the table.
1: be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. It is right. Do that now. Give him thanks. God, we thank you. We know that the act of being thankful, God, it combats envy. It combats jealousy. Break down the walls of our hearts. You know, at the Last Supper, uh, there was not unity because of the man Judas. And what was it that Jesus did to someone in his midst who was about to betray him? He fed him. If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. That's what we are to do. And we can do that because Jesus did that. This is what we hold in our hands, is that act. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, after giving thanks like we have just done, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you break this wafer in your hand? By his wounds, we are healed. Even when we pierce him with the spear, he still says, this is for you. Would you receive the bread? In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, which is a mystery. Let's proclaim the mystery of our faith together. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Would you receive the cup? Would you just receive this morning? gift of the Holy Spirit is yours, that the requirements on you to enter the kingdom of God was simply to believe, simply to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and he is faithful and just. God, thank you for including us. We respond this morning in doxology. Would you sing?
0: Jesus prayed, make them one, Father. And do you know that the Father will not deny any of the requests of Jesus? He will get what he asked for. (laughs) The Spirit will make us one. Can you lift your hands like this and receive this blessing as you go? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. I'm going to invite our altar ministry team to come forward this morning or this afternoon. If you need prayer for anything, we'd love to pray with you. Stop at Connect Central if you're new. We would love to meet you and remember to meet us right here at 5 o'clock. And also, don't put your chairs away. We need to leave them up for the family meeting tonight. So leave them out. We'll clean them all up tonight. 5 o'clock right here for food and great discussions. It's going to be great. See you then.